Hey everyone, Eric Grenier here, and welcome to the 59th episode of the RIT Podcast. The end is finally near, as the Conservatives will announce on Saturday who will be the next leader of the party. Give their last takes on this leadership race before it is all over. I'm joined this week by Chad Rogers, founding partner at Crestview Strategy, Tim Powers, chairman at Suma Strategies, and Stephanie Levitz of the Toronto Star. Hello, everyone. We're finally here at the end of this race. Hello. Are we? <laughs> We've got a few more days to go, and they got to count votes. You never know what can happen. Well, that brings me to my first question, uh, because, you know, it has been pretty quiet for the last few weeks, because I think all of the campaigns, all they're focused on right now is get out the vote. There's not really much of an air war anymore. It's all about just getting people to actually cast their ballots. Um, I'm curious, uh, Stephanie, because I know you've been uh, looking at this, you wrote about this recently, about people rushing in to cast a ballot. You had one story of someone driving all the way from Bracebridge to Ottawa to get their ballot in. Uh, is, do you have a sense that this is going well and it's going to go off without a hitch on Saturday? I think there's some concern inside the party. I mean, I don't know, garden variety concern. I wouldn't think that it's fatal or anything. They are behind in processing the ballots. They're calling in all hands. Uh, turnout is higher than they expected. And, you know, do I think we're going to see a repeat of 2020 with the malfunctioning machine that couldn't rip open the too thick envelopes and delay it? I'm not sure. I don't think they've made some changes even to the shape of the paper to avoid that particular complication. But um, it is the turnout is higher than expected, which means that could lead to a delay. But I think the winner um, will still be crowned the winner on Saturday night. You, you, I think you wrote about it that right now the turnout is somewhere around 63, 64% already, which is matching what it was in the last race. Now, the deadline for getting the ballots in has already passed, so it's probably not going to go up much more than that. But I think when you saw a big number like 670-some thousand people, there was almost an expectation that a lot of them weren't going to end up voting. It was sort of like with the Liberals in 2013. They had a lot of free members, uh, but their turnout wasn't particularly high because there was a lot less commitment. But here... they've got a lot of ballots they're processing, Stephanie. Yeah, I mean, it's still more ballots than, you know, the last two leadership races combined, right? This is still a high volume. The percentage is what it is, um, but it's still a lot of people who've made the choice to cast a ballot. And as I saw yesterday, I mean, it wasn't just, this one woman was remarkable. I mean, in her dedication and her pursuit and her determination to cast this ballot, but she wasn't the only one there. I mean, there, there were campaigns, I watched them like literally running in with stacks of ballots in hands. I saw... I think it was about 12 big blue bins worth of ballots coming out of Deloitte, like right after five o'clock. So that's, you know, a couple hundred, couple thousand last minute votes that people were running in. So that that's um, engaging, right? That means people are highly engaged in this and, and want to be a part of it, no matter who their candidate is. They were motivated enough to show up. That's pretty remarkable. Chad, what do you think uh, how this is going in the final stretch in terms of just the logistics of getting this done? Uh, pretty good. Um Look, let's remember largest uh, leadership or inclusive democratic political process other than an election that's ever occurred in Canada. So kudos for hitting a new high watermark. We often talk about apathy or lack of participation in political process in Canada, the opposite of which is true. There's lots of healthy energy here. I think anecdotally in talking to the campaigns, their major enemy has been first time voters not realizing how these processes work because they're a little tricky. And, uh, you know, we think of leaderships being the domain of of, uh, established partisans who've done this a hundred times, where leaderships are actually the onboarding point for people who are doing it for the first time and leaderships are where they choose to get involved and get swept up. And I think a lot of folks, uh, you know, are getting a phone call saying, have you voted yet? And they're like, yeah, I voted that day I came to the rally and signed up. And they're like, no, no, that was just signing up. Uh, Well, I voted that day that I uh, mailed the form away to get my ballot. No, no, that's not voting. You haven't finished yet. There's two more steps. 
so I think that uh, of the folks who haven't participated, uh, part of the challenge is that the barriers are pretty high. You have to be pretty organized and go through three or four hoops to actually cast a ballot in the process. And with all of that being true, still getting 400,000 Canadians, you know, I'm from PEI, a province of less than 150,000 people, multiples of my home province uh, 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 participating. Well, I'm pretty impressed. It's three times the number of the base membership going in, if you look at it that way too, right? So that's three times, like you, you assume the base membership is going to cast a vote. Those are the folks Chad's talking about that can do this in their sleep. They've done it so many times with the Conservatives in particular now, but um, that's three times as many people the candidates individually have managed to draw out. Uh, and that's pretty impressive. Uh, Tim, I, I've even gotten questions uh, that, you know, uh, in terms of how you could rank people, whether you could rank someone third as your first, uh, just a very, so there is going to be that complication. Have you heard things either from the campaigns or from the party in terms of just the process? Uh, no, not really. I've just seen a lot of the coverage about uh, we're bringing ballots in, we're bringing ballots in. I mean, that's the momentum argument or showcasing that's happening now. Look, being the, the dimmest of the four here, let me simplify the math for people. So you've all said 60% of 675. What's that? It's 405,000 votes cast. So that, as Chad alluded to, in and of itself is impressive. It's hard not to imagine there won't be some complications, though, to be fair to the party, even the best team trying to get 405,000 votes through. So you should expect some delays and, uh, and, and challenges around that. What I found really fascinating, linking to the 405, and linking to your question earlier about things being quiet was a, an op-ed piece that was written this past week by Laura Kermacki, who everybody here will know. Laura, well-respected conservative, uh, very close with, with Jenny Byrne, though has her own opinions. I'm not saying it was Jenny's opinion that Laura was offering. Laura was making the argument in her opinion piece in the Hill Times that, you know, Pierre Polyev, would be what would welcome or would would be blessed with uh, an overwhelming majority and if he got that overwhelming majority that would help him to, uh, ensure more stable transition and i think that's part of what's at play here i think the the polyev campaign having been the best organized all the way through it's hard to argue that they weren't are trying to do that so there's probably more work going in on their side to make sure they get a comprehensive majority and I think Chad said this in one of our early podcasts, they're also very attuned to the lessons of past leadership races, that being uh, the front runner, uh, to use a phrase that I hope doesn't offend too many, shits the bed and doesn't win. Pierre doesn't want to defecate on his new conservative leadership stornaway sheets uh, before he gets the chance to get in there. There were at least, I'm not, there were probably half a dozen Pierre Polyev campaign staffers standing in the lobby of that building yesterday running in ballots. Like They, they were a presence and a force. They were all wearing t-shirts. Um, you know, it was, it was an interesting thing to watch. And, and also what I noted is you would have thought they would go in and then, you know, run up, deliver the ballots, and then, I don't know, celebrate or perhaps <laughs> evince some enthusiasm. And it wasn't. They were all back on their phones and then running off down the street to some other thing they had to do. Like, these guys are, are working right to the end here. For Jean Charest, you one of the hopes would have been that there would have been low turnout among Poliev's supporters just because his win might have been uh, seen as inevitable. But with these kinds of numbers... Uh, Tim, it doesn't seem like that's happening, right? He's going to lead the the Irish leprechaun on my head here, I think, uh, to pull off a, a, a victory. And 
Look, uh, I think as uh, as we know, I've been the most boisterous around Mr. Charest. I'm I'm a fan, I, and I know Chad is as well. Um, but yeah, I think it, short of a miracle, which I don't see transpiring, uh, he's going to probably be concerned about placing uh, where his placing ends up on Saturday. I mean, it was interesting. Uh, somebody I know in the charade campaign uh, reached out to me before this podcast and was asking, do you think Pierre is going to win on the first ballot? I haven't answered that question yet because I wanted to hear what Chad was going to say. Not that my thought is driven by Chad's, but uh, I, I think that's a great possibility. But, you know, charade can be hasn't lost yet. And maybe the leprechaun does help him, but it's going to be tough. All right. Let's not get predictions yet. Save it for the end. Okay. I want to go through each of the candidates a little bit, how this race has been helpful or hurtful for their own political futures, because obviously I think we all agree that an upset seems unlikely and it would be a hell of an upset if it is pulled off. So it is more about how they are, I think, going to place and what it means for their future. So we'll start with Scott Aitchison. Chad, did he succeed in what he set out to do? Because I don't think he set out to win this. Oh, he set out to try and be a viable member of a future cabinet uh, as an otherwise uh, white male guy in the Ontario caucus in a sea of white male guys in the Ontario caucus um, remains to be seen. Uh, I'm hearing lots of anecdotal evidence that there are lots of ballots coming in that are HSN 1, Pierre 2, um, and vice versa, that, that the voting base of HSN didn't look like the Charest voting base voting in protest to a poly of leadership. Um, I think that would be helpful for him. Uh, for Aitchison now, uh, uh, the big test of whether or not he succeeded will be, does he get a tier one critics post uh, in the new caucus? And does he prove himself in the first six to eight months of the opposition uh, leadership uh, of, of Polyev uh, in distinguishing himself and showing that he can do uh, the critics job and, and gain some attention and um, build some credibility. But as of today, I mean, we know his name and we're talking about him and that's completely changed uh, the, the conditions he lived in a year ago. Tim, is that it? Is that enough for him? Uh, maybe. I, I mean, look, I, I think he's positioned himself as well uh, as a, a thoughtful, moderate, but a team player. And that could be a very useful position if conservatives do find themselves again a year and a half back in or three years, whenever the election comes and they don't succeed in a, in a position of defeat. So I think he's done very well. I mean, for me, again, Eric, it will be interesting to see, you know, what second, third and fourth look like in terms of support. And that I think, you know, if, if Polyev wins, he'll also be looking at that as well. His team certainly will be. But I look, I I, I, I think Scott Akinson has, has, has done himself well. He's certainly not done himself harm. He's not done himself harm. Stephanie, do you agree with that? I, I mean, I, I would say, you know, first do no harm maybe should be the principle of leadership races, right? Try and find a way to keep the tent together. Don't poke your opponents in the eye in a way that's going to be fatal at the end of the day. Scott Aitchison has definitely done that. I do, you know, some of the folks I talk to, a little bit of ruffled feathers over his tone sometimes, his chastising, like, you know, you're all crazy. Like the, the interaction he had with Leslie Lewis during one of the debates where he effectively called her a conspiracy theorist. Um there will be, you know, remaining factions within caucus after this leadership race. Scott going into it wasn't part of any one of them in particular. He wasn't part of a gang. He didn't have a little coterie around him. 
Um, so that's interesting. Is he a caucus lone wolf? And I don't mean that in a negative way. Can he play the bridge for Polyev between some of these other factions, some of the moderates, for example, who did support Charest? If they, if Polyev were to, let's say, reward Aitchison, does that make them feel better, right? Is he a proxy for that group in caucus? I think that's an interesting play for him. I mean, and he remains ambitious, Aitchison. Like, I'm not mm-hmm. sure that um, you know, was this a cabinet play? Does he see himself as a prime minister one day? I, I don't know. He says, you know, he's going to keep taking French lessons. He's going to keep hustling. So maybe there's more we haven't heard from him yet. Remember the state motto of Missouri? Uh, uh, the show we me all state. Remember that. That's the the show me state. Yeah. Uh, uh, so when you say I'm from Missouri, uh, uh, I think Scott Aitchison is a classic example of an I'm from Missouri case. He, he's entirely got to make his brand about being competent. He's got to do the same thing David Emerson had to prove to conservatives that he, that he was going to be as good a conservative as he was a liberal because of his competency as a, as a minister. Ageson's got to step up and prove that he's competent, not that he's a moderate. You can't prove you're a moderate. That's like saying you're a passionate advocate for the color beige. Um, you, you've got to, he's got to stand up and say he's just really, really good at the subject matter assigned and getting the work done and good with stakeholders. And, and, and that's all work that has yet to be done. I want to move on to uh, Roman uh, Baber. Um, you know, Scott Aitchison has a caucus seat. He'll go back to being an MP. Uh, Baber does not. Uh, he was an indep- He was uh, originally elected as an Ontario PC. He was booted out of caucus. That is an independent. Now has no job after this. Um, Tim, do you think that he has carved a place for himself? Is he going to be welcome as a quote-unquote star candidate for Pierre Poilievre in 2025? Minister of Foreign Affairs, it's done. Um, is he going to be a candidate is probably my question. I don't mean to be hard on the guy. Like, what was his game plan in the beginning? Uh, and I'm not sure I've ever known that. Um, uh, so is he running to be a candidate? Maybe he's done okay if that's his perspective. But I, I, I don't know what he's added to the whole dialogue. Um, other than he spent a couple hundred grand of his own money or the money of others to get into this. So... Baber is, for me, he's still a question mark. Stephanie, he still raised a decent amount of money, had about as many contributors uh, contributors as Charest did. So he does seem to have some support. I, I am curious to see what he's going to get on that first ballot. Yeah, I mean, I, I you know, if people are, are playing the horse race game right, I mean, it's, you know, Aitchison will have the lowest amount of support and then above him will be Roman Baber. Th- that seems to be the, the current consensus view of things. I mean, it's an interesting... Thing. You know, when people ask Jean Charest, would you run um, for the conservatives under a Pierre Polyev led government? And Charest was, you know, wouldn't say, and it was a big deal, da da da. Roman won't say either. Roman has not said, you know, convincingly that he is committed to be a conservative member of parliament if the next leader will have him, for, which is generally the standard answer you give, right? If, you, if you're a conservative, you, you want to be a conservative member of parliament. It should be both things. So, um, you know, he brings with him a base of national support that he built in his immediate ouster from Doug Ford's caucus. And in as much as, you know, Pierre Polyev is discussed as the candidate who met the moment um, in terms of his policy, in terms of his drive, his thematics, Baber also met the moment. Polyev's taking it forward. Baber is still stuck in time. Um, although he's put out a lot of policy ideas, he's talked, you know, a lot of sacred cows. He wants to slay supply management. Like, you know, he's got ideas. Um, but what he hasn't shown, I think, to the party, perhaps, is what is he, what would he like to do with those ideas if he's not going to be leader? Uh, Scott Aitchison the other day put out, you know, a couple of fundraising pitches that all but conceded defeat, right? Acknowledged he was not going to win. Acknowledged he does not have a chance. And I'm going to be a team player. Roman, like Tim said, what do you want to do next, Roman? Where is your vision for you, the country, your ideas? 
Does that play into a conservative government? I think people would like to know the answers to those questions. Chad, do you think this is the last we hear of him or do you think we'll see him around? No, I think Roman Babar um, probably gets offered one of the two York seats uh, competitively, which uh, should be strong potential pickups uh, uh, in a Polyev campaign, particularly the seat of former member Michael Levitt, uh, who's now the CEO of the, uh, uh, of the Wiesenthal Center. I think that'll be a very hard hold uh, for the government. Uh, Roman will be quite viable there. Roman has reinvented himself ideologically a few times in his short career. Uh, but he's clearly a decent communicator who knows how to build a base. I think he'll be given a shot. For me, the prediction of whether or not he will seriously transition into federal politics uh, will be his views on the Russian invasion of Ukraine uh, and Roman's um, uh, Russian support uh, um, uh, and whether or not he calls the balls and strikes clean on Ukraine. That would be the only thing I would see as as the tiger trap in front of him. Uh, Otherwise, I think he's going to be a decently high-profile candidate in one of the York seats in GTA. If the next election is in 2025, this race will feel like ancient history. So uh, there's also that. Maybe by then, um, you know, he won't be someone that the party is really all that you know, bothered about trying to get involved. But one of the areas where O'Toole was particularly incompetent as leader is he didn't seem to ever remember you have to keep a count of winning enough seats to form a government. <laughs> And if uh, Roman Babar is enough to add one more seat in GTA because he's the nominee and he can raise the money and do it, the way you win is by getting enough seats to form a majority. And if it's one more seat, that's worth conceding, uh, building a space in the team. And that's where the role you know, of campaign manager is so different than leader. The leader's got to have a campaign manager sitting in a room with them, screaming at them, saying, I know you don't totally love this. It isn't the perfect solution, but it's potentially one more seat or two more seats. You know, Peter McKay should have been running in the last federal election as part of the Aaron O'Toole team. He wasn't because Aaron O'Toole, the leader, didn't want it to happen. And attorney gave up between one and three seats as a result. You have to remember to count. If Rowan Babar is one or two seats as a pickup, well, the leader's got to seriously consider. That brings to mind another license plate. We must talk about it, Eric. Je me souviens. I mean, we've had Missouri, now <laughs> Quebec. I will remember. I mean, if we're going to make this about license plates today, let's get them out there. Um, okay, let's move on to Leslie Lewis. Um, for me, the question here is not so much whether she has helped herself uh, in terms of her own political future. I- I'm wondering about whether her campaign in the end will have helped the social conservative movement within the party. Because you could argue in 2020, she was a little bit of a star. She came out of nowhere. People that weren't all that aware of her. She did really well. Um, in the leadership race, she finished first in just the terms of number of votes on the second round of voting. And she was a kingmaker. She was the one who had her votes went over to O'Toole, or enough of them did, to make him win. This time, if Poiliev wins on the first ballot, he will have won without the explicit support of a social conservative uh, candidate, uh, social conservative uh, you know, organizations. Tim, do you think that out of this, Leslie Lewis will, and, and the movement that she represented, is going to be stronger or weaker? Well, I remember fairy tales, and I never heard Cinderella became Cinderella twice. You can only put the glass slipper on once. Uh, And I think she probably was, you know, she's limited by the expectations of the first race. It's hard to be a darling, to continue the metaphor, a second time. Now, that said, we, you know, people were surprised by her ballot. If she finishes ahead of Sheree... I think she uh, has demonstrated that she's still a power player. 
Now, how does she use that power? To your question, Eric, is it for social conservative causes and being the standard bearer, or does she look to expand it? If she has long-term political ambition, I think she can do both, maintain her core and go forward. And there's nothing to suggest, and I'm not using ambition as a dirty word here, but she doesn't. I, I think she's demonstrated she's committed to being an influential conservative voice. Is the voice as influential as it was? TBC uh, on Saturday night. Chad? Well, again, I'll, I'll go back to the greatest hits of the mistakes of Aaron O'Toole, right? Um, uh, Les and Lewis should have had a senior role uh, uh, in the previous caucus. And I assume Pierre Polyev looks at her and says, um, a, uh, a black uh, female uh, lawyer uh, with doctor in front of her name in a safe seat in Ontario is a pretty powerful resource that any leader should be using in their caucus, particularly when they're communicating, um, you know, the best of talent and diversity and the like are part of the conservative coalition, not always assumed to be. Um, let's remember the social conservative coalition also isn't homogeneous in any way. It's a heterogeneous issue set. And I think with Patrick Brown's removal from the race, uh, the con the, 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 the altitude and the energy around the Lesson Lewis campaign was uh, there's a competitive uh, race here and we have to make a point and then win, but make a point first. Uh, with Patrick Brown's removal from the race and a belief on the part of many conservatives from all uh, uh, parts of the spectrum in, in the party that the race had now pivoted to no longer being an internecine war and now being about preparing Polyev to fight uh, Justin Trudeau, I think the energy really fell out of the Lewis campaign. The premium to do that values vote uh, uh, as part of the competitive leadership race, the, the the motivation fell. And a lot of the Lewis voters have ultimately ended up voting Polyev if they voted. So I think she'll do well. I think she's a very, very powerful resource and tool for the new leader to use in caucus who's already in a safe seat. So I think she's going to have a, a big role going forward as much as she wants. And um, to Tim's point, you know, whether or not she's second or third will really dictate uh, uh, how big a chair she gets uh, on the first round of critics. Uh, Stephanie, um, you know, just uh, I'm curious to hear what you think about her campaign in general, but, you know, it, leadership races, you know, there, there are always receipts, right, from the leadership race. We saw that with Stefan Zion uh, and uh, Michael Ignatieff uh, and how that all played out. I mean, if it, if Roman Baver is a candidate next time, Leslie Lewis obviously going to be a candidate next time, there are things that happen during this leadership race, things that they said that, might not go over that well with the the swing voter. Uh, so to me, I, I do wonder about the impact of of the spotlight in that sense. But uh, I don't know if you have a, a view on, on uh, Leslie Lewis's campaign and whether she comes out of this better than she did in 2020. So a couple of things I'll say. In 2020, um, Leslin managed to capture sort of the populist prairie vote that was anyone but Aaron, anyone but Peter. And there was a, a, a wing. It wasn't social conservative, if we're thinking about that in the context of words like um, the anti-abortion movement and things like that. She was the, the populist sort of candidate. She was new. She was fresh. She was exciting. And more importantly, she was not Erin O'Toole and she was not Peter McKay. That vote in this leadership race, um, such as it is a group of people, are all Polyev. Now, that, that, that populist, prairie populism has moved to Polyev. I also don't think that you have... As much as we talk about Leslin being a grassroots candidate, she came out of nowhere. Yeah, but not really. Like there's a lot of big establishment heavy hitters that are they're operating behind her, helping her out. And they definitely were in 2020. They're not that active this time around. Why? Either they've walked away or they've parked their support too behind Pierre Polyev. So that's the first point. The second point is this. 
If there was anyone in this leadership race who was going to challenge Pierre Polyev on a, in a meaningful sort of accountability piece of a way, it could have been Leslin Lewis. She could have been, and I'll use, I'll go back, let's go back to the 2017 leadership race. Recall when Kelly Leach suddenly wrapped herself in the Canadian flag and started talking about a values test and all of that stuff. And Jason Kenney stood up and said, I sat next to you in cabinet for the better part of 10 years and you never said word one about that stuff. So Kenny made a choice in that campaign to walk out and sort of try and tamp down that argument right away, like just shut it down. Think about it in the context then of Leslin. Leslin could have done the exact same thing to Pierre Polyev, right? She could have stood up and said, I was sitting in caucus with you for eight months, nine months. You never said, I don't even know if he said anything. I want to say that clearly, but she never did that. She never attacked him. She never went after him on the authenticity piece. She tried one or two times, but she never did it hard. Um, that's interesting to me. That means that she has a son. She is ambitious. She does want to play a role because she doesn't want grudges. She doesn't want those receipts being called in when it comes to who gets what cabinet post in the next poly of government. In terms of what she said during the leadership race, she's in one of the safest seats for the conservatives in the country. I don't know if it's going to hurt her with her own constituency. Is it something that the liberals sort of try and, you know, move up to the national discourse? Well, as you know, we were just saying the next election is three years away. Um, how many clips they can hold on to from this leadership race and weaponize in three years. I don't know. Uh, Lesson Lewis did in one of the debates go after Poiliev a little bit, but it was in terms of his support for the Freedom Convoy not being strong enough and early enough, right? Which is a kind of uh, very focused on the conservative base and, and people who would be motivated by that issue. But the broader public does not think that Poiliev probably should have gotten more into the convoy early on, right? So that accountability was much more inwardly focused than you could say like outwardly focused in terms of um, you know, some of the candidates trying to prepare them for a general, that kind of thing. But um, I don't know if anybody has wants to weigh in before we move on to Charest and Poiliev, but uh, all right, we'll do that. We'll go off to Charest then. Uh, so obviously for him, success would have been winning and we think that that's unlikely to happen. Um, so my question starts here. Uh, Chad, we can start with you. Assuming Charest loses, as, as we kind of assume, what's next for him, but also perhaps more importantly for the people who signed up to support him? Um, I don't know. Do you, uh, do you remember Jane Stewart, who's a cabinet minister uh, uh, in the Cretan government, minister of uh, human resources development, um, very, very accomplished minister, uh, very tall. Uh, and uh, if you remember Jane Stewart, I don't know if you remember Jane Stewart's dad, uh, an Ontario provincial politician named Bob Nixon. Uh, and Bob Nixon had about the most interesting second act in Canadian politics. He was one of the very rare Ontario Liberal Party leaders who didn't become premier, but who then came back in a successive government after uh, no longer being leader to be finance minister and to be a wildly powerful, influential finance minister in a successive Ontario provincial government. If Mr. Charest wants it, he has a bunch of political options ahead of him that are not obvious. He could be the single most serious, uh, single most eminence uh, member of a future Polyev cabinet. And uh, that doesn't seem obvious today, but it's obvious if you want to win seats and you want to populate a cabinet, build a cabinet with real lumber. And let's remember that just like Peter McKay did last time in choosing to run again, he gave up a lot financially. He gave up, he had to resign gigs that have income that won't all rematerialize on the other side of this, uh, uh, not having won. 
I hope that Mr. Sheree will seriously consider whether or not um, his commitment to being in the Conservative Party extends to being in a Conservative cabinet, not just leading it, because I think he could be a wildly powerful uh, Minister of Finance or Minister of Foreign Affairs that would be hugely useful to Team Polyev. I'm also going to issue a broad mea culpa to Tim and to you and to uh, listeners and readers and viewers. I said the best he was going to be able to do is come third. Uh, and I was pretty, I was dunking on that for a long time. I think he's probably going to come second. Uh, and that's going to be a, a pretty big accomplishment for him. Uh, though I think his contribution to the race has been um, uh, a little pious, uh, a little uh, new to the movement, a little high-handed, a little dated. Eh, he just hasn't been on the road for a while either. So do I think he could be better and could be a hugely powerful member of a future Polyev team and run, even though it seems like he would never do that today? I think he absolutely should do it. Uh, he'd be wildly successful at it. But today he comes second and maybe he goes back into getting two thirds of his board gigs back. Um, but I hope he isn't done in politics because this is about to get more interesting. Stephanie, I'm sure the press conference where Charest and Poliev go up together to announce that uh, Charest is joining <laughs> Poliev's team is one conference. that you're going to be you're going to be excited to be at, I think. Uh, look, I, I don't. If your Polyev holds press conferences, I'll be excited. Um, <laughs> but you know, that's another thing. Listen, I think with with Mr. Charest, Ch Chad raises some good points. You you got the sense with Mr. Charest at the outset of this race, the very early days, the whole is he going to run? Is he not going to run? That this was almost like a bucket list thing for him. That he really wanted this. It, he was ambitious. He believed in it. He believed in what he could provide to the country. And he realized that this might, in fact, be his last chance to try. And he tried. And he gave it his, his all. And I know this hasn't been a race where we've done a lot of deep dive into policy ideas or discussed it. But what he has brought to the table is a suite of ideas that are about updating sort of how the conservatives view and manage and think about government and the world for the problems of the modern era. And that's really very valuable. And to be able to have those conversations, you know, is he a future finance minister? Is he a policy guy? I don't know. It's a, it's up to what he wants to do. Was Is losing, is it enough to say, at least I tried, right? At least I tried. And now I'm going to go back to my board gigs and I'm going to, you know, hang out with my wife and we're going to travel the world and eat expensive yogurt at the Westin for breakfast like he did in a profile, you know, like maybe that's enough. Um, I, you know, one of the things that'll be interesting to see in terms of the vote count and the point allocation is he's, his team has been consistent saying we have the points, right? We, we can go on this point system. Um, when Patrick Brown was kicked out, there was this narrative that the Brown campaign would sort of pick up its infrastructure, move over to support Charest. And that was always the inference, right? The two of them were working in tandem somehow. One was going to support the other. So what happened to that then, right? If, if that, was it ever real one were Patrick Brown's numbers? I mean, people consider them wildly inflated. Will this be proof that they were in fact wildly inflated? I, I don't, you know, to go out and capture those votes. I don't know. So I think that will be um, interesting to see how Brown, sorry, how Charest performs in some of the writings, perhaps where Brown was believed to have a lot of strength <clears throat> and what he takes from that. And is it bigger than Quebec? I mean, that's the other thing. If Charest's base of support if he outperforms Polyev in Quebec ridings and, you know, we, the media, sometimes love a narrative, right? And it's, oh, no, Pierre Polyev has no support in Quebec. Oh, no, Pierre can't win a majority government because he can't support Quebec. I don't know. I don't, I, you know, there's lots of different ways to get support and build support in Quebec that aren't about Jean Charest. Um, but some of it will be Jean Charest, you know, will he speak, continue to speak out against Pierre Polyev even? He does have respect in Quebec. Will he, will he be quiet and go away? 
if he chooses not to engage any longer at the conservative federal level, or will he continue to fight Pierre Polyev just on principle? Tim, what do you think's next for Jean Charest? Well, he can do whatever he wants. Let me state the obvious. Look, this whole question, and I'm not saying that Stephanie posed the question earlier, and I'm not calling Stephanie stupid by any means, because I've got a life. Uh, no, no, I wouldn't do that. I'm not Pierre Polyev. Uh, <laughs> not liking the media. Um, but but this whole notion, he, well, he must run or he can't run. Who gives a damn? Guy's 64 years of age. Hey, for any of the candidates, Robin Baber, whatever age he is, whether he runs for the conservatives or not, that's entirely up to him. Just because you run under leadership, you don't have to run the party. You don't have to run for re-election. So that's up to him. That question gets asked because it gets on the issue of commitment, as we all know, and he really committed to the cause. I don't think Jean Charest has to ever answer a question about his commitment to the country and public service. So that question in this case doesn't apply. Chad's theory is an interesting one. Uh, when Chad was speaking of, of, of that scenario, he reminded me of somebody we both used to work for, and that was Joe Clark. I don't see, you know, because Clark came back afterwards and though he hadn't left politics and hadn't had the commercial success of Mr. Charest and hadn't led a government, uh, but he came back and became a great foreign affairs minister for Brian Mulroney and did some impressive things. I don't know if I see Mr. Charest doing that, but this is what I hope to see, uh, Eric, is that if, as we all seemingly expect, Pierre wins on Saturday or early Sunday morning, his outreach to Mr. Charest and his words about Mr. Charest need to go to a place they haven't gone before. Because Mr. Charest also symbolizes a, a section of the party. We'll see how large it was when Tuesday, Saturday night comes, who aren't comfortable naturally with Pierre and some of the things that he said. And you can dismiss us, them, as you know, old red Tories and old progressives, but you don't win by dismissing those people entirely or at all. So the challenge is less Jean Charest and arguably more Pierre Polyev. How will Pierre deal with Jean Charest and his supporters? To me, that's, that, that's a fascinating thing. And I would say this in conclusion. Look, I don't think Mr. Charest, again, back to the do no harm analogy, he's done himself any harm. He didn't need to do this crap at 64 years of age. As Chad said, he was vacuuming up cash. He'd gotten past all the scandals in Quebec. Uh, he didn't have to spend six months on the road at that age doing what he did in his 20s with Chad and Chris Breen and others. Um, so full credit to him, because I think finally he gave voice to a lot of people in the conservative party who legitimately wanted to discuss the issues Jean Charest was pushing Pierre Polyev on. And finally, who want to see, um, you know, a maturity in government that everything isn't simply uh, trinkets and baubles. And finally, I would say this, there wouldn't be this two finalists. Wouldn't be a, a press conference with Sheree. I see it being a YouTube video where Pierre can say, look, I finally found my own old timber. And he can photograph the next <laughs> piece of timber that we had before. How's that? How's that? Very good. Very good. Okay. Uh, we are getting... Eric, with video ideas like that? Come on. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So uh, time's, time's running out. So let's... Uh, we have been weaving discussion of Pierre Poiliev throughout this thing. So, uh, you know, we there's not so much more we can add. But here's the question I have, and I'll just hear from each of you. Chad, we can start with you. Um, does it matter if Poiliev wins on the first ballot? Does it matter if he gets 60%, 53%, 70 Does that matter? Yeah, first ballot win always matters um, for his first year as leader. Um, it, 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 you know, Sheer won a, a very, very tight uh, uh, race. Um, did it really impact him in, in the first year? 
no, he, he had a pretty unified uh, party right away, but it certainly didn't help him survive, uh, um, you know, not uh, winning his first time out. Uh, so I think the, the bigger your first ballot win, proving you've got a mandate from the party, uh, just makes makes it easier because the new leader can then say the party's taken care of. I now have to get on to the next job, which is winning over the country. Stephanie, does it matter? Yeah, it matters. And to, and to pick up on a thread from Chad, um, you know, there are, although Pierre Polyev had the lion's share of caucus support behind him, absolutely, there are MPs who, who don't support him, who are questioning their political futures under a Polyev-led party. But if they look at those results and say, well, hey, now, my riding, my grassroots, my people are backing Pierre Polyev, and I, I ne- need to make a choice, right? Like a harder choice. Um, listen to the grassroots, believe that old conservative, you know, the like we listen to the grassroots. We are a grassroots party. This is what the grassroots have chosen. I better get along with it um, or I better go. And I think the decisive nature of that victory, if there's no room for wiggle, um, it'll help make those decisions and potentially pull the caucus together a little bit faster than it might otherwise. Tim? Well, if you look at the most recent history, the last two leaders have been uh, taken down by premeditated homicide because by their own caucus and members because they didn't have enough comprehensive support and because they didn't work to garner that support when they had impish, wimpish victories. So I think Pierre wants to send a message, as I said earlier, that he's got this ship under control. Any final point I'd make on that? He also doesn't want um, Stephanie and her colleagues and critics and others saying, well, look, you didn't really have that big comprehensive win. What about this faction? What about that faction? If he can tamper that down on day one, that's a win for him. He's going to owe nobody anything. That's, you know, the high level. Wins decisively, he owes nobody anything. Okay, we're going to finish off with this and you can be as detailed or as vague as you want. Uh, Stephanie, Tim, and Chad will go in that order. Predictions for Saturday. Stephanie, are you willing to uh, to venture? You know, it's funny. I had a conversation with somebody yesterday and it went like this. Pierre's going to win on Saturday, right? Well, yeah, he's going to win on Saturday. But what if he doesn't win on Saturday? Do you think maybe he's not going to win on Saturday? No, he's going to win on Saturday. And that's about as far as I'm going to go. Tim? I don't see how he doesn't win at this point. Uh, and again, for me, the interesting part will be second and third governed by some of what we've talked about on this podcast. I do hope Mr. Sheree gets second place. I, I think he deserves it. I think it will show he still has uh, significant political skills that uh, the Conservative Party could benefit from. Chad? I think uh, Pierre wins it on the first ballot with a number that starts with a six. Um and I think he probably gets to about 65. Uh, I think turnout is a number uh, with a five in it, uh, above 55. So I think you're between 55, and you won't get to 60% turnout. You'll get to 50, somewhere between 55 and 57. I think Pierre probably gets uh, on the low end, 63% on the first ballot, on the high end, somewhere just above 65. Uh, I think um, uh, Mr. Charest and uh, Dr. Lewis end up fairly close. One of them's in the low 20s, one of them's in the high teens. Uh, and then single digits for uh, Babar and uh, and Aitchison. And I think the leader the leader will be named by 9 p.m. Okay, because Tim said early Sunday morning, and, you know, we all have plans. Uh, <laughs> I don't want to still be at the Shaw Center early Sunday morning waiting I, for I don't Sunday think it'll Sunday. be 7 p.m. like the party's saying right now in media advisories, but I think by 9 we're going to have a leader. For what it's worth, the party said yesterday they were saying like 7.45, 10 to 8. 
All right. Yeah. We'll see. That is probably the prediction that is the worst uh, that we're hearing today <laughs> in terms of when we'll get the results. Anyway, thanks so much, uh, Chad, Tim, and Stephanie. Uh, really enjoyed uh, chatting with you, uh, Tim and Chad, of course, throughout this uh, campaign. Uh, Stephanie, you know, this is the second time you come on the pod. Really appreciate it. And we'll have some results Hopefully on Saturday night, hopefully on Saturday night, I have been in a, a number of leadership races where, uh, you know, I had to cancel plans uh, pretty late into the day <laughs> because of uh, unexpected things. So really appreciate you three coming on and giving us your last take. And we'll see how it all unfolds on Saturday. Thanks so much. Thank you. Chad Rogers is a founding partner at Crestview Strategy. Tim Powers is chairman at Suma Strategies. And Stephanie Levitz is a parliamentary reporter for the Toronto Star. You can catch me on the CBC Airwaves on Saturday night. I'll be providing some live analysis of the results, and I'll also have something posted to the Ritz website either that night or on Sunday about how it all went down. Also, in case you missed it, every week I'm being joined by Philippe J. Fournier of 338Canada.com to chat about all the latest from the Quebec election campaign. We had a bonus episode out earlier this week on Monday. These episodes are for subscribers only, so if you don't want to miss them, you can head to therit.ca to subscribe. Okay, that's it for now. Lots coming up in the weeks ahead. Until next time, thanks for listening. <music>